0: morning. Good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can open them with me to Genesis to the book of Genesis. As you turn, let me ask you, do you enjoy a good love story? All the ladies in the house affirmed that they did. The men gave a groan. Okay, well, guys, just think of Tombstone, okay? It's a classic love story with shooting in the middle of it. It's, like, perfect. But a good love story, do you? Do you enjoy a good one? Maybe just by mentioning the idea of a love story, your mind goes to a particular one. Maybe some of your minds go to the works of Jane Austen. Pride and Prejudice, of course, and Mr. Darcy. Hey, lights. <laughs> Think of Mr. Darcy. Whoa, dipping the lights. Uh, Mr. Darcy, or maybe your mind goes to some other one. Um, gone with the Wind. Frankly, Scarlet. Uh, maybe your mind goes there. Maybe if um maybe if you're a little younger, your mind goes to Rip and Beth Dutton of Yellowstone. Um Whatever the case is, a good love story, the characters of a good love story, have a way of drawing us in and revealing the desires of our hearts, even if we don't care to admit the desires of our hearts to other people. But a good love story will often do that. The characters will suck you in and it will expose and reveal the desires of our hearts and in genesis chapter twenty four you can go ahead and turn there genesis chapter twenty four we 'll see a true love story a true love story, which means it 's not a made up cheesy one like wind calls the heart it 's a legitimately true Some of you are just getting it. That's the love story that's on a replay in my house all the time is Wind Calls to Heart, and I love it. The only advantage to it is it knocks me out. It puts me to sleep. I mean, as soon as it's on the TV, I am asleep within five minutes. It is. That's the only benefit of that show. We're going to look at a true love story. A true love story um, that points ultimately to the ultimate love story. And so when you get to Genesis chapter 24, you'll quickly see it's a long chapter. Notice that. In fact, it's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It's 67 verses. And that is kind of surprising when you think about it. Because Moses spent just 56 verses telling us about the creation of the world and the creation of Adam and Eve. He spends just 56 verses telling us how the world was made and how Adam and Eve were created. But here, in the middle of the book, he takes a long time, 67 verses in all, to tell us about a love story. What? Was like Moses a romantic? I mean, what's the deal? Well, what's it about? Here's what it's about. It's a, like I said, it's a, tr- it's a story. It's a true story of how a father sent his servant on a long journey to seek and secure a bride for his promised son and their union together. It's what we would call, if, what you'd call if you were taking a English language arts class, you would, you'd call it a novella, a short story with a limited number of characters starting from beginning to end that teaches some, uh, it's a wonderful little story that teaches some points. But, but here's the key. It's more than just a great story here in the middle of the book. Because it has lessons for us, and then ultimately it drives forward the larger, the larger narrative of God's redemptive plan. And so Genesis 24 is where we're going to be this morning, and before we jump into the text, let me give you a little bit of the outline, and we'll move quickly through the outline. But there's four scenes to this story. Here's what they are. Verses 1 through 9. We'll see Father Abraham's faith is determined. Abraham's faith is dis- is determined, and he sends his servant out. That's in verses 1 through 9. In verses 10 through 28, the servant's faith is exercised. So Abraham's faith is determined, the servant's faith is exercised. That's in verses 10 through 28. He makes this tremendous long journey, trusting the Lord's providence all the way through. That's in 10 through 28. Uh, third section, in verses 29 through 61... The bride's faith is responsive. 29 through 61, the bride's faith is responsive. She responds to the call on her life joyfully and willingly. That's 29 through 61. And then lastly, in verses 62 through 67, the marriage is realized. The promised son and his bride are joined together. That's in verses 62 through 67. Okay, here we go. Let's jump into it. And what we're going to do is we're going to hopefully work all the way through 24. And if time permits, we'll jump into chapter 25 for the first 11 verses. So we'll see. We'll see how fa- fast I can talk this morning. Let's go. Verse 24 or chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Um when he says that he's old, Moses says this about Abraham, um he's probably at least 140 years of age at this point. 140 years old that is certainly well advanced in years. Uh, so he's an old guy at this point and we know that the Lord has certainly blessed his life. We've seen this as we've traced through the Abrahamic narrative. The Lord has blessed him. He has been true to his promise. God has been true to his promise every step in Abraham's life. But the promise, the covenant to Abraham wasn't to stop with just Abraham. It was to be for his descendants after him. It's, a, it's to bless his descendants after him and make them as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand upon the seashore. And so, verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac and the servant, and we don't know his name. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said, Oh no, no, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So again, think through the Abrahamic narratives, and we have seen obstacle after obstacle to the promises of God being fulfilled in Abraham's life. You think early in the account, um, there was a famine in the land. Right when the promise came to him, there was a famine in the land, and, and Abraham decided... Uh, he's going to go into Egypt. And there he tells, he lies about who Sarah is to the Pharaoh. So that was an obstacle. You get later, and Abraham and, and Sarah become impatient, waiting on the Lord. And so they decide they're going to take matters into their own hands. And Sarah comes up with this really stupid plan that her husband should sleep with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. And, and Abraham says, okay. And he does so. Produces an offspring, Ishmael, the obstacle to the promise being fulfilled. And here, now the obstacle is this. Um, the obstacle is now Abraham's old. He's well advanced his year. And Isaac, the promised son, he's 40 years old at this point. Well, what's the obstacle? He doesn't have a wife. And there's no dating apps online. There's no FarmersOnly.com for Isaac, which is a major bummer for this dude. So what is going to happen? How is this going to come about? How will the family line continue? This is the issue. And so Abraham tells his servant, don't get away from the Canaanites. You're going to go on a journey, but don't get away from the Canaanites. I want you to go to my homeland. I want you to go to my country, and I want you to find a wife who will continue the covenant. And the servant says, well, well what about if she's not willing to come? Should I take Isaac back there? And Abraham says, "No, of course not, God, the Lord has given us this land we 're not to leave this land. this land is the land that he 's given us we 're going to live here, but you go there and get me a, get me a wife from my uh my son. Trust the Lord, He will see to it, and He will grant you success. and then the servant promises to do so, and you see in verse nine it says he places his hand as the, as the text tells us, under the thigh of Abraham. you see that phrase. Every commentator that you will read on this text says that's a euphemism for the place of reproduction for a male. I'll give you two guesses what that means, and I bet you you only need one. Aren't you glad in our hand when you, aren't you glad in our, in our culture when you make a promise, you just shake hands? <laughs> I bet you you are. You just shake hands in our culture. In this culture, when you made that promise, you you put it in the place of reproduction. Well, okay, moving on. By the way, um, kind of a sidebar here, but notice. Notice that Abraham sees it as an older person. I mean, he's 140 at this point. He is certainly well advanced in years. He sees it as his responsibility to ensure that God's, re- God's redemptive plan goes to the next generation. As an older person, he looks at it and he says, this is my responsibility. I'm to see to it that God's redemptive plan goes forward. And and all throughout the chapter, this chapter particularly, um, you will see the interplay of human responsibility and divine initiative. And sometimes you wonder, well, the divine initiative, where the Lord is perfectly coordinating his, his circumstances. And sometimes you'll wonder, I've asked this question myself many a times, when I, especially when I was younger, well, what's the interplay? What's the interplay between human responsibility and divine initiative, especially in regards to passing the faith to the next generation? You want to know what the interplay is? Here's what it is. You do everything within your power, everything within your power, to make sure the the faith is passed to the next generation. You do everything within your power using your resources, your gifts, your time, your talents to make sure God's redemptive plan gets passed to the next generation. And then you trust that the Lord will orchestrate, He'll coordinate the circumstances of another person's life in such a way that when the gospel call comes to them, the Lord will have set the scene, their heart will be ready, and they'll respond to the gospel. They'll be as ready as possible. That's the interplay. That's the balance. Abraham, he saw the passing of God's redemptive plan to the next generation as his responsibility, and he took action. He didn't just hope it would happen. He didn't just sit there and think about it and say, well, I really hope this happens in the next generation or so. No, his faith, as I mentioned, his faith was determined to see it happen. And if you're an older Christian, someone who's well advanced in years, and if you think I'm going to tell you, if you qualify for being well advanced in years, you're crazy making. I'm not going to do that. But if if you identify as somebody who's older, at, well advanced in years, as Moses puts it, let me be so bold as to say, I hope that you take this responsibility as seriously as Abraham took this responsibility. I read in this, I read in the newspaper this past week that the United Kingdom, um, those who identify as Christian now in 2021, those who identify as Christian is at 46%, which is down from 59% in 2011. Which means in the UK, if you're a Christian, you're now in the minority. Now think about that for a second. Because the UK has a tremendously rich Christian heritage. I mean, The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, held the pulpit at London Baptist. Uh, My personal favorite, John Stott, held the pulpit at All Souls Church right there in downtown London. So what the heck happened? How does it go from 59% 10 years ago to now 46% within a 10-year span? How does that happen? You want to know how it happens? Bottom line, the faith didn't get passed. An older generation drop the ball spiritually to pass on the faith to the next generation that's why this is so important bottom line the faith wasn't passed so i hope if you're an older christian you take this responsibility seriously and you like abraham you adopt a posture of act, of activity rather than passivity to ensure that the faith gets passed so abraham's faith is determined and now he commissions a servant and then in verses 10 through 27 We're going to see that the servant's faith is exercised. Look at verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Um, Camels, by the way, were not a common way of traveling. It's an indication of great wealth. It's kind of like the equivalent in our day of 10 black SUVs with tinted windows rolling up into your neighborhood. Um, you would think if that happened, you would think, finally, the president is going to respond to my emails. And he's personally showed up to talk about this. Um, that's kind of, it's, it's a sign of power. It's a sign of of an important person has come to pay you a visit. Um, that's, that's the image. And so when he loads up 10 of these camels, he's indicating when he makes his way to Mesopotamia, that the person who's coming, who he's bringing a witness to, or he's bearing a message from this person is a person of tremendous importance. That's what this servant is doing. It's a sign of great power. So he went up and he went to Mesopotamia. He makes this long trip, probably at least mm, 350, 400 miles and he's seeking, remember what he's trying to do. He's seeking to, uh, he's seeking to secure a bride for the promised son. And so Moses fast forward, doesn't tell us how the camels did on the trip, makes all the way to Nahor, the city. And he made the camels, verse 11, made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water. At the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, oh Lord. God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I might drink and who shall say back to me, drink and I shall water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now look at how the servant's faith is exercised here. How's it exercised? Well, he prays. Uh, John Calvin, the great John Calvin, once said that prayer is the chief exercise of our faith. If that's true. What does your prayer life say about your faith life? If prayer is the chief exercise of our faith, then what does your prayer life actually say about your faith? Well, look at the time. Moving on. We won't press that point. Just something to think about. If if it's really the main exercise of our faith, what does our personal prayer life, not our public prayer life, It's a great warning to preachers. But what does your personal prayer life actually say about how strong your faith is? Something to consider. Well, he prays, and not only does he pray, he prays rather specifically. Look at what he says again in verse 13. He's praying to the Lord, and he says, Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar That I may drink, and who shall say drink, and I will water your camels? Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. You see the phrase there, steadfast love? Uh, That's the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed speaks of covenant love and covenant loyalty. And so the servant is saying, Lord, in light of your covenant, in light of your promise to Abraham, in light of the covenant that you've made, would you show through the kindness and the hospitality and the generosity and the capability of one of these women, which one, wh- whoever is willing to help this stranger, would you show which one of these women is to carry forth and lead, for- lead forward your covenant promise with Isaac? That's what he's praying and so, verse 15, before he had finished speaking, look how the Lord coordinates all, all of the providence of God, before he had even, even finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, who was born to Bethel, the, uh, Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Now, Uh, Note in verse 15, all of this is told to us. The narrator is telling us who she is, her name, what her lineage is. Uh, 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 The servant at this point knows none of this. We're giving inside information here. So he identifies her. Then verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. So she's marriageable age. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand. So she takes, was on her shoulder. She brings down her hand, gives him some to drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they had finished, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her. (laughs) This is the understatement of the day. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Now remember, remember, this servant had come with 10 camels. You know how much a camel can drink? We're talking 20 to 25 gallons. And she's carrying, their, most of the water jars in those days were about three gallons. So what she's doing, she's committing herself to at least three hours of really hard, strenuous work. And she does it willingly. She just offers it up. I have to carry five gallons of water each day out to my daughter's horses. And you want to know what I do 99% of the time? I grumble the entire time I'm doing it. Like, I don't have time for this. What am I doing? This is heavy. It's cold. I can't stand these horses. <laughs> Earth! She offers all of this up willingly. Just like, let me do this. I'm going to offer all of this up. This, you know what this is? This is a very capable and hospitable woman. Her character matches her physical beauty. So the servant's prayer is completely answered. He's watching this. When it says she's, he's watching in silence, he's watching thinking, praise the Lord, my my prayer has been answered. So verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, a nose ring, gold nose ring, weighing a half a shekel, and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. And said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there a room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, now she's going to identify herself to this, the servant. She says, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Um, basically that lineage means that Abraham is her great uncle. And Isaac would be a cousin, one, a first cousin removed. And so, He's hearing this, the servant's hearing this, and he's saying, Oh, this is even better than what Abraham, this far out uh, exceeds what Abraham asked. He just wanted me to go get a kindred. Look at this. It's his great niece. This is wonderful, amazing. And so the servant goes, gets a gold nose ring, which was common in those days, and two bracelets, probably trying to win her goodwill and impress her family in a moment. And then he inquires if there's room back at her house um, for he and the camels, and she provides even more hospitality. She extends even more hospitality. Look at verse 25. She added, "We have plenty. We have plenty of both straw and fodder, and room to spend the night." And the man, the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken." His steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So she she makes her way back to the household and begins to tell the whole family. And this is where the tension begins to build in the story and where her faith becomes very responsive. Look at verse 29. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm, and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Remember camels, ten large SUVs. He sees he sees all of this. He sees the bracelets, he sees the gold ring, he sees the SUVs, and he says in verse thirty one, come in. <laughs> come on in. Hey, you got some money, you got some power, you got some influence. Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So Laban, we'll read more about Laban in the weeks ahead. He's something of a character. Um, if you know the account of Laban. But he's gripped by greed right here. He sees the power. He sees the money. He sees all of it. He's greatly impressed by it all. He's gripped by greed. And he says, come on in. Come on in. This is great. And then verse 32. um, So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of his men who were with him. And then the food was set before him to eat. And after a long journey, you would think he would just dive into the food. But he said, the servant said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He says, I have a mission to accomplish, and nothing's going to detract detract me or um, persuade me to do otherwise. I'm going to complete my mission. And so they say, okay, sure, speak on. And so he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. And he has become great he has given him flocks and herds silver and gold male servants and female servants camels and donkeys and sarah my master's wife bore a son to my master when he, when she was old and to him he has given all that he has and you can just Im- imagine laban's ears at this point just perking up This sounds too good to be true. A rich son, everything's been given to him. This is great. And what happens is, in verses 37 through 48, I'm not going to make you read it. He he repeats, almost word for word, exactly what Abraham, the commission that Abraham gave him. To go to my kindred, go to my homeland, find a wife. And so he repeats that almost verbatim, tweaks it a little bit to fit his audience. And then he tells them about the journey that he's just made and how the Lord has providentially set it up so that he meets Rebecca at just the right time, at just the right location. And he, he, she answers all of his prayers to the very last, to the very last request. He makes all of this very clear. And then he puts the question to the family. Look at verse 49. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love, he's, uh, he's talking to the family. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, if you're not going to show steadfast love to my, to my, um, my master, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad Or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments and he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there so they all go to bed that night really happy and with the settled knowledge that rebecca is going to travel back with his servant and become the bride of the promised son the bride of isaac but then the morning comes and more tension is brought into the account look at verse second part of this, verse 54 When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother, this is Laban, and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Uh, You see the phrase there, let the woman remain with us for a little while, at least 10 days? That actually can be translated as let the girl remain with us for some days, maybe 10. And it it, it kind of has the connotation of um, let just let this be just an indefinite period of time. We're not going to set a number to it. Let the young woman just stay with us for a little bit. And it may be Laban's way of trying to squeeze out some more goodies from um, the servants ma- from the servant. We're not really sure. But whatever the case, uh, there's rising tension of well, what's going to happen now? Another obstacle to the covenant promise. Will it be overcome? And so they put the question to Rebecca. Look at verse 56. But they said, but he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, well, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca. And said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go It's a remarkable step of faith on Rebecca's part. The question is, Rebecca, will you leave everyone and everything you know and go to a place and go to a people you know not of? Does that sound like anybody else's call upon their life? It sounds just like the call that came to Abraham, did it not? Way back in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord came to him and said, Abraham, up from your kindred. I want you to leave your your father's house, your homeland, your country, and go to a place where you not know. You, You know not nothing of. And the same call comes to Rebecca, and she responds with faith. She says, I will go. The Lord has brought this about, and I will go. Now look at that. Her faith is responsive. She joyfully and willingly follows the call of God, God's call on her life. And she gets up and she goes, verse 59. So they sent her away they sent away rebecca their sister and her nurse her wet nurse and abraham's servant and his men and they blessed rebecca and they said to her our sister may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him uh, may your it, actually the, it actually translated may you, um May your offspring possess the gate of your haters. (laughs) I love that translation. It's a better way to translate. May you possess the gate of your haters. And then Rebecca and her young women arose, and they rode out on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. And now what happens in verses 62 through 67 is the scene shifts and we're back in the promised land where we're going to see the marriage is now realized. The promised son will have his bride. Look at verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Laha Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself. It's uh, This is worded in such a way that it, 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 it suggests that their eyes meet at the same time. Surely Isaac knew that his father had sent his servant, his most trusted servant, off to find a wife for him. And he's out in the field, maybe hoping someday soon his bride will come. And she, he lifts up his eyes, and she lifts up her eyes. And their eyes meet, and she puts her veil over her face, which indicates to Isaac, oh, this is my bride. <laughs> my bride has responded to the call. And she's come. she's come here, and we're going to join in union. It's, this is all symbolic to Isaac. Verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. Now remember, Sarah's off the scene. She's passed away. So Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And the story closes right there. And the key phrase, right, all of it, is right there. She became his wife, and he loved her. Rebecca now becomes the matriarch of the family. And as Abraham, in chapter 25, verses 1 through 11, we won't look at him because I'm running out of time, Abraham passes away at the ripe old age of 175. And so Isaac now becomes the patriarch of the family. And the covenant promises are now passed to the next generation. Isn't that a wonderful account? Isn't that a great story? The father puts a plan into action. The servant accomplishes his mission. The promised son has a bride whom he loves. It's a wonderful account. And the mirror the account lends itself to talking about marriage. So I want to close by talking about marriage a little bit. And i got to be careful how we do this. Um, because this text throughout centuries has almost been used as a marriage manual. Providing detailed instruction on how to do courtship and marriage. And if you word it in such a way, you would almost end up at the place of arranged marriages. You can make the application fit arranged marriage. Now, i got to tell you, as a dad of two daughters, I kind of like the idea of arranged marriage. I kind of like the idea of a dowry. Um, Is that wrong to say? But I kind of like it. But I don't actually think that's the application for the text. I don't think you should go there with the text. There's nuance here. Note, by the way, that Rebecca gets to choose. So it's not strictly arranged marriage. However, there is a point to be made. And this is not one of the three closing points I'm going to make. There is a point to be made about having older, wiser people involved in the courtship process. But that's, again, not, not here. So what do we learn regarding marriage as this passage lends itself to talking about marriage? Three things and then a fourth. Here's the first thing we see. First thing to note here is marriage matters. What do we see right off the get-go? Marriage matters. Moses spends 67 verses telling us about this love story that results in marriage. And sometimes we simply need to be reminded, especially in our culture and in the day and age in which we live, that marriage matters. Now, by saying that, I don't mean, I do not mean that marriage is essential to living a fulfilled life because it's not. The Bible, elevate. you want to know how you know it's not? That that marriage is not essential to living a fulfilled life? How, how could that be the case? Well, because the most fulfilled man in human history wasn't married. Christ. He wasn't married. So marriage is not essential to living a fulfilled life. However, the Bible elevates and honors. The Bible does elevate and honor singleness and the unique contributions that singles make to the marriage of God. That is certainly true. But marriage, especially Christian marriage, with the creation and the formation of family, it is central to God's plan. And it's important for us as a church to simply reaffirm that. Because uh, heterosexual, monogamous marriage, Christian marriage is under attack in our day. And as a result... It's in decline in our culture. So we need to reaffirm as a, as a church culture, we need to reaffirm the goodness of marriage and we need to value it and not mess with it. Because we saw in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, marriage is God's idea, not ours. So we don't have the authority to mess with it. And as a church community, we need to safeguard it. We need to safeguard the truth that marriage matters. It's foundational to human society. It's foundational to the covenant community. We need to both promote it and protect it. We need to teach on it, and we need to help married people to the best of their ability stay faithful to their vows. So marriage matters. Here's the second thing we see, that when a marriage happens, a man gets a wife, and a wife should inherit the framework for a life. Now, please catch that. When a marriage happens, a man gets a wife and a wife should inherit the framework for a life. Think about the account. Rebecca in this account is very capable, very confident, and a very hospitable woman. All of the characteristics of an ideal help me. And Isaac, when he receives her, receives her with joy and he loves her. So he receives a wife who is suited and eager to be a helpmate for Isaac. That's the role of a woman in a married relationship, the helpmate of a husband. Now, not to put a too fine of a point on this, but let me ask the ladies in here who are married. Are you living into your calling to be a capable and strong helpmate for your husband? Because biblically, a wife is to be a strong, capable helpmate for her husband. Now, please hear me on this, Ladies. That doesn't mean you can't work outside of the home. It doesn't mean you can't have a flourishing career. It doesn't mean you can't be the CEO of a Fortune 500 country, of a Fortune 500 co- uh, company. It doesn't mean you can't be the president of the United States. But what it does mean is she's to see and value her role as a helpmate for her husband. That's absolutely true. She's to see and value her role as a helpmate for her husband and bring strong, capable. Uh, consistent guidance into their relationship. That's absolutely true. So in a marriage, a man gets a wife, and the woman should receive a framework for life. She should receive a framework for life. When Rebecca marries Isaac, you know what she instantly receives? A complete covering. Spiritual, spiritual covering, emotional covering, and financial covering. She receives instantly stability and love. And a husband is to provide the framework of a life for his bride. Spiritual maturity, emotional maturity, and financial wisdom. A complete covering for his bride. So, men, those of you who are married, how are you doing with this? Are you living out your calling to be a covering for your bride? in spiritual matters, in emotional matters, and in financial matters. Now listen, it doesn't mean you have to be as wealthy as Isaac. But it does mean you have to provide stability spiritually, emotionally, and financially. And of the three, the finances are the least important, which is at odds with the way that men think. Bottom line, it's at odds with the way that men think. Because emotional maturity and and spiritual maturity is far more important than financial strength because financial strength can evaporate overnight. We've seen that with stock market crashes, but emotional maturity and spiritual maturity that'll live on forever. That'll get passed on to the next generation. See, a man, a husband is to provide these things for his wife. And sometimes one of the worst things I see from time to time is a woman who's married to a boy who can shave. You know what a boy who can shave is? It's a guy trapped in an adult body, but he has an adolescent life. That's a boy who can shave. An adult body in an adolescent life. And those women, they're trapped. And my heart goes out to them. They're trapped because they thought they were inheriting a framework for a life of emotional stability, spiritual stability, and financial wisdom. And if they don't actually get that, the stability they thought they were they were going to have isn't theirs. And then they're trapped into something. That's a terrible situation. A husband is to provide a covering for his wife, while the wife is to be a strong and capable helpmate for her, her husband. This is the biblical ideal. Now, let me say one more thing here. Because even the best of marriages um, go through wonky seasons. Is that not true? If you're married and you've gone through a wonky season, raise your hand. The ones who have not raised your hand, we need to talk afterwards. Because the Bible does not condone lying. All marriages have their rough patches, their awkward seasons. Even the best of marriages, as is in the case here of Isaac and Rebecca, it takes tremendous work. And in the weeks ahead, we'll see, by the time of their own children, they have twins. We'll see that when their twins reach marriageable age, their own marriage, Isaac and Rebecca's own marriage, it has real disunity. Which means the best of marriages, um, no matter how well a marriage starts, for a good marriage to continue, it requires not only a good beginning, but continued leadership, good character, and real godliness. That's the second thing we see out of this, is that when a marriage happens, a husband receives a a wife, and the wife receives, should receive the framework for a life. Here's the third thing we see out of this account, and that's the faith within a marriage matters. Please note that. Uh, Faith within a marriage matters. Abraham tells his servant, don't take a wife for my son from the Canaanites. You go to my country... You go to my kindred, and you get a wife from there. Take a wife from my son Isaac from there. Why is that so important? Why Why is it not okay for Isaac to marry a Canaanite? Well, here's why. It's because the Canaanites were not the people of God. And as a people, they were barbaric and wicked. And Abraham doesn't want God's covenant promises to be compromised by intermarriage with unbelievers. Now we'll see, again, in the weeks ahead after Christmas, um, once, once we get into January, we'll see in the weeks ahead that Esau, one of their offspring, he does marry a Canaanite. But Abraham, here, the father of the faith, he stresses to not compromise intermarriage with an unbeliever. And the apostle Paul, you transpose this into the New Testament, the apostle Paul says the exact same thing. In first Corinthians, Paul instructs those who are getting married to only marry in the Lord. Believers are to marry other believers. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And I do a lot of, I, I do a lot of premarital counseling, and I often will tell young couples who aren't really listening, Let's be honest, when you did premarital counseling, were you listening? No, you were in love, and you were driven by hormones. But I tell them all the time, I said, you want a, you want a surefire way to add frustration to your marriage? Marry someone who doesn't share your faith. That's the quickest way. You want a surefire way to, to have built-in frustration within your marriage? Simply marry someone who doesn't share your faith. And you will have a built-in, guaranteed point of frustration within your marriage. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, a great book, by the way, which he co-wrote with his wife, Kathy, he says this. He says, if your partner doesn't share your Christian faith, then he or she doesn't truly understand it as you do from the inside. And if Jesus is central to you, then that means your partner doesn't truly understand you. He or she doesn't understand the mainspring of your life, the ground motive of all, all that you do. If you marry someone who doesn't share your most deeply held and core beliefs, then you will repeatedly make decisions that your, that your partner won't be able to fathom at all. That part of your life, and it is the most important part, will forever be opaque and mysterious to your spouse. You see, the Bible says, if you want a thriving and healthy marriage, you and your spouse need to have a shared worldview, which drives your motives and your actions. Otherwise, one of you will always be spinning your wheels. And what's interesting is finally social sciences is finally catching up with the Bible. Social sciences is finally coming to agree with the Bible at Northwestern University in Chicago a great academic school one of their most popular courses is called marriage 101 and marriage 101 you when i give you the name of it it sounds like like a cheesy a cheesy easy class like underwater basket weaving so like the University of North Carolina basketball team, can get enough credits. That's not what this is. This is a meaty academic. It's a real course with meaty academic uh, studies. The students attend the weekly lectures. They discuss topics from infidelity to addiction to child-rearing to sexuality and long-term relationships and communication, and they interview. they're forced to interview mentor couples. One of the professors recently said this in an article in The Atlantic. Listen to it, because it's really it's really insightful. He says, despite how often we hear about the importance of good communication, even the best communication skills won't help a couple that see the world completely differently. huh interesting he He argues he goes on, he argues that people can be prof uh, incredibly proficient communicators, yet they're not able to see eye to eye. Because they have completely different worldviews. They can't under, and they will never be able to understand how their partner holds a position that they see as untenable. They just, they can't fathom it. Now, isn't that interesting? Now listen, that's exactly what the Bible says. That's exactly what the Bible says. And it's the reason for the biblical principle. If you marry someone who doesn't share your faith, if you marry someone who doesn't share your faith, there's really only two ways forward. There's only two ways forward. One is that you will become less and less transparent about your faith. You'll become less and less transparent. Because in the normal, healthy Christian life, you will if if you're a Christian, in the normal, healthy Christian life, you will relate Christ and his gospel to everything. You will base your life decisions upon Christian principles. You'll make big life decisions based on Christian principles. You'll think about and you'll talk about what you're reading in the Bible and how the Lord is shaping you. But if your spouse isn't a believer... They'll find it annoying and offensive and they'll say something to the effect or they'll think something to the effect of, oh, here we go again with that Jesus talk. And so you'll have to hide it. You'll have to hide your faith to keep peace in your home. That's one way forward. The other way forward is you'll simply have to move Christ out of first place in your mind. You'll have to do one or the other. Either you'll hide it or... You'll have to move Christ out of first place in your mind. You'll have to let your love for the Lord cool. You'll have to deliberately not think about how your Christian commitment relates to every other area of your life. You will have to demote Christ in your mind and in your heart. Because if you keep him central, you'll continually feel isolated from your spouse and your spouse from you. So it's either one or, one or two options going forward and none, none of them are that attractive. Which means, this is why if you're a Christian, you should submit to the Bible's teaching. You should submit to social science's new understanding and not become too emotionally involved with the person who doesn't share your faith. Because the faith within a marriage matters incredibly, it's incredibly important. So what do we see here? Let me give you those three again. Marriage matters. And we need to both promote it and protect it. Here's the second thing we see. When a marriage happens, a man gets a wife and the woman gets a framework for life. And both men and women need to live out their calling, the call that God's put upon their life. Third thing, the faith within a marriage matters. And we need to submit to both the biblical teaching and social sciences new understanding regarding it. You see, I told you, you get into this text and you're like, well, at least I did. Tuesday when I read this text, started prep for it, I thought, what in the world? Is there anything here that I can talk about? Yeah, this account lends itself to talk about marriage. But there's one more thing. As the lights are going out, this is a sign. He has talked too long. Turn it back on. Here's the other thing, though. This account, while it lends itself to talk about marriage, the passage actually points beyond itself to talk about a greater romance and the ultimate marriage. How? Well, let me ask you this. Wouldn't it be amazing to be pursued like Rebecca? Wouldn't it be amazing to have someone sent on a long journey in order to find you and bring you into union with someone whose life far exceeded yours? And you, when you receive that, they they search you out and they find you. And then when they call and they put this call upon your life, you, like Rebecca, would respond in faith and you would say, yes, I will go. Yes, I will follow. You see, this passage, while it has tons of things of importance for our own marriage, it actually points beyond our marriage to the ultimate marriage. This passage actually talks about the gospel because this is exactly what Christ has done for us. Just as Abraham sought out a bride for his son, so God the Father is seeking out a bride for his son. Just as Abraham took, takes all the initiative here to send his servant to find Rebekah and to bring her to Isaac, so God the Father sends his servant to draw sinners to Christ himself. Just as Rebekah, when she is wooed and drawn into the family, she comes to a point where she has to make a decision. I will choose. I will follow. I will trust. In the same way, every one of us has to respond to the call of God in our lives to become the bride of Christ. And listen, I know when I say the bride of Christ, some of you dudes are sitting, I don't want to be the bride of Christ. I don't like the idea of being a bride of anybody. Well, listen, females in this room are called sons of God throughout the scripture. So get over it. (laughs) My gosh, get over it. You're called to be the bride of Christ. We're called to respond just as Rebecca did. To say, "I, I will go, I will trust, I will follow. This is the gospel call upon your life. Ray Ortland, who's a great pastor, retired now, he used to be a pastor in Nashville, he teaches uh theology now, I think it's Covenant, Covenant Seminary. One of his books, he captures this idea, well, listen to what he says. He says, the biblical story lifts up before us a vision of God as our lover. The gospel is not an imperialistic human philosophy making overrated universal claims. No, the gospel sounds the voice of our husband who has proven his love for us and who calls us and who calls for our undivided love in return. Undivided love in return. The gospel reveals that as we look out into the universe, ultimate reality is not cold, dark, blank space. Ultimate reality is romance. There is a God above with love in his eyes for us and infinite joy to offer us. And he has set himself upon winning our hearts for himself alone. The gospel tells the story of God's pursuing, faithful, wounded, overruling, transforming, triumphant love. And it calls us to answer him with love. (laughs) Isn't that great? Now listen, you see what this does? This whole passage points beyond itself. It tells us that God in love is pursuing you. And his intention is to win your heart. And for you to respond in faith, just as Rebecca did. And for you to say, I will go. I will trust. I will follow. That's wonderful. And it all starts to be realized this time of the year, Christmas, the long journey. The second person in the Trinity goes from heaven to earth to pursue you. He comes all the way from his father's throne above, enters into human history with his heart set on winning your heart and his eyes set on redeeming your soul. That's amazing. So let me ask you, have you responded to the love of God with the words, I will follow you, Lord. I will trust you and I will go. Because that's the gospel's call on your life this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, for this wonderful account of a true love story. And Lord, what it reveals to us is that our hearts were actually, the reason we crave romance is because you wired it into us, Lord, so that the divine romance of God becoming one of us in order to woo us to himself with a real husband's love, real strength, real love in his eyes, Lord, we would pray that you would call us. You, we would respond to you in faith as Rebecca did. And we would say, I will go wherever you lead. Lord, I will go. And so we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for calling us into a union that is not dependent upon us because your life far exceeds ours. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to you. Just as a husband and a wife are called to be faithful to one another, we pray that we will be faithful to you. And when we fail and fall short, we thank you that your mercy has been extended to us again and again through Christ. We love you, Lord. And as we leave here and we go back into the places in which you've called us to live, our homes, our neighborhoods, our places of work tomorrow, We pray that in every one of those uh, spheres of influence, Lord, we would represent Christ and his grace well. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.